Alrighty, welcome everybody. Good morning, Austin Stone, and good morning to all the campuses enjoying the stream this morning. My name is Ross Lester, and you may have been able to tell I'm not from around here. Um, I'm actually from West Austin, um, where I'm the campus pastor there. Everyone out that side of town speaks like this. Once you cross 360, this is the Linga Franca. Um, it's, uh, it's what happens when you live in the suburbs and watch too much Downton Abbey. Um, it's just a consequence of living out there in the West, but you should come visit. Um, it's marvelous. Second Peter chapter one is where we're going to be. And so if you have your Bibles, please turn there. We have just spent 13 months in First Peter. And if you haven't been with us, I'd encourage you to go on the website um, and to check out uh, the, the sermons that we have been covering over the last year or so from First Peter. And now we're going to dive into Second Peter. Fortunately for you, perhaps not for 13 months, but for three weeks, it's going to be kind of an action-packed run-through. But this is an often forgotten but power-packed little letter that Peter writes not long before he shuffles off this mortal coil and goes to be with his beloved savior. Have you ever felt like the Christian life is actually stacked against you? I have. Like you know you are supposed to be good, right? But you have a worldview that acknowledges and frequently reminds you of the fact that you can't really be good, but you still must be good, but you can't really. It can be exhausting and frustrating to say the least. Church community then becomes a constant cycle of discouragement for many believers. Every Sunday, you get rightly rebuked by a chap in a checkered shirt with an ESV up here on the stage, calling you to something better, and it's right and good and godly that we do that, but deep down inside of you, there's this hesitation because you know that that right and good and better is something that you probably cannot do. And you also know that if you do manage to do it, you will be reminded that you are still an absolute wretch and that it counts for nothing anyway. It can become a bit of a zero-sum game, growth in godliness in the Christian church. Does anyone feel this? Uh, perhaps it's just me um, and the stone has just made a very foolish hire indeed. But my own sanctification, that is a big word for the fact that Christians are supposed to grow more like Christ, right? We make up bigger words because then we can argue over the big words and not do the things we're actually supposed to do. But sanctification means becoming more saintly, becoming more like the one that we're walking after. And so sanctification is becoming more like Jesus Christ. You're supposed to be doing that, by the way, if you're a Christian. But my own sanctification has been frustratingly slow. And sometimes it has felt like it has stalled completely. God saved me when I was seven. I'm now 39. And there have been seasons in my life where I've gone like, I don't know if I'm growing at all. And as I get to 39, I look and I go like, I'm kind of disappointed with where I am. I didn't really think I would struggle with these things anymore. I just thought I would be more godly than this. I thought I would be more mature than this by now. And the Christian life, if you're paying attention, can feel a lot like a yo-yo up and down, but largely stationary. You guys know what a yo-yo is? Uh, all the kids from, from my generation loved them, all right? And, and we had the, the lead pastor of the stone, Kevin Peck, at our house around the other day, and you wouldn't believe it, he's like a yo-yo maven. The dude's like unbelievable. He's like a yo-yo mega talent, and so he can do walk the dog and round the world and rock the baby um, and all of those incredible tricks, but it's still a yo-yo. It still comes back to your hand. And so he was showing off to my son with all these tricks. And my son's seven, right? And he's looking at it, he gazes up from his iPad momentarily. And Kevin says, hey, look, walk the dog. 
And Daniel says, is that all it does? And, and, and that's kind of like the Christian life. We can do some tricks, we can go on some Bible studies, we can attend a retreat, we can feel great for a while, but ultimately it's up and down, up and down, up and down. It's up on a Sunday. We sing great songs, we feel great, and Monday is kind of, yeah. Tuesday we've lost the holy hangover, right? And by Wednesday we fully fledged outside of the kingdom again, okay? And so then we have some drinks at ladies' night on Thursday, and then um, by Friday we deeply repentance. Saturday we don't know what we believe, and Sunday it comes back up again, all right? And so it's just this kind of up and down, up and down. It's, it's like that. You go on a retreat, it's up. You go on spring break, it's down, all right? And so it's... It's just this endless cycle. And so we can get into a few traps of common Christian behavior to try help us out, or at least I have in my 32 years of walking with Jesus. The first one is we can get into pharisaical behavior control, trying to control and limit our behavior like the Pharisees did. We become obsessed with sin management and eradication, but in a manageable way, just like the Pharisees. You see, the Pharisees didn't read the law and go like, oh my goodness, we need a savior. The Pharisees read the law and went, okay, I think we just need a plan. If we can break some of these things down, I think, and we can get some clear definitions, I think we can keep this stuff. They read the law and they went, okay, love your neighbor. Who exactly is my neighbor? And Jesus said, the Samaritans. They were like, all right, didn't see that one coming. That's not what I thought, all right? Uh, under which circumstances did Moses allow me to get a divorce? They said to Jesus, and Jesus says, it's not about circumstances, it's about hardness of heart. They're like, we're gonna have to kill this guy, because seriously, uh... <laughs> what constitutes work on the Sabbath? Jesus says, well, I do good on the Sabbath. What are you doing on the Sabbath? They're like, we're having church services. They're very important, um, and, and, and we like them, right? But they're trying to break these things down so that they can keep them. Now, there's some kind of godly impulse in there. There's a desire to obey God. So how can you tell the difference between being a Pharisee and just a good desire to be more holy? Well, two ways. First of all, you'll know if you've given into Pharisaical behavior, if your sense of justification before God, your right standing before God, if that waxes and wanes with how well you are obeying at the time you've given into Pharisaical behavior control. If I feel really confident that God loves me when I'm doing well and not so sure that he loves me when I'm doing badly, my goodness, right? Secondly, Pharisees will no longer be satisfied with managing their own sins. In fact, they'll see it as futile, and so they'll become quite obsessed with managing the sins of others. What is the second kind of trap of behavior that we give into? It's religious pretending, otherwise known as church small groups. Um, Everyone else seems to be godlier than us. Have you noticed this? You hang out with Christians, everyone else seems to be super godly except you. And so what we do is we just stuff down our struggles nice and deep because we are certain that rejection would await us if people ever really knew the real us. And so we repent because we've seen other people do that, but we repent only kinder. We admit, oh, we have some issues. I would appreciate some prayers because I've stumbled in some areas. And that's how, as specific as we will get when we describe them to anybody. We become more concerned with guarding our reputations. Now, reputations are a good thing, but we become more concerned with guarding our reputations than with allowing our character to be shaped by walking in honesty and transparency. And it's exhausting, Christian pretense. It's exhausting. The third trap is defeated rebellion. At some point, you either just compromise God's instructions or you just give up trying to keep them. Some feel the need to reorganize God's instructions to appease their conscience, and they ask the first of the silly questions in the Bible, and we just repeat it. Did God really say? 
And so because we want to do something that we know he said we cannot do, we ask, well, did he really say? And eventually we surround ourselves with an echo chamber who will give us an answer of saying, I don't think he really said. And so we'll be able to justify some stuff and give into rebellion and go after what we really want. Some of you aren't really even thinking through it that far. You've just quit trying to be holy. And you've said, ah, to hell with it, literally. I'm gonna drink that, or look at that, or say that, or think that, or lie about that, or, 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 I'm just done. I'm just gonna go with it now, I'm tired. And often, these three go hand in hand. Defeat often comes from exhaustion, from pretending, and rule obsession. Pharisees often have a future rebellion in their life, right? When I was doing youth ministry with students, I would watch the most rule-abiding kid and I would stick to them closely, why? They had their Amish moment coming up and you could just see it. At some point, this kid's gonna get frustrated by this and he's gonna break every commandment simultaneously, if possible, he's just gonna go bananas at some point. We just get fatigued and we give in to rebellion. Friends, some of you are in a prolonged season of this sort of defeat in some areas in your life. It used to plague your conscience, and it just doesn't anymore. And just so you know, that isn't a sign of God's approval, that's actually a sign of God's judgment. When something used to plague our consciences and doesn't anymore, (laughs) that's not a sure sign that God says, that means it's okay. It might be a very powerful sign that God says, I've stopped convicting you of that because you need to go and figure that out. That's, That's part of my judgment. But, praise be to God. What Peter says in this little letter is so powerful. He's gonna remind his readers, you don't need to give into futility. You don't need to pretend. You don't need to behavior manage. You actually have everything that you need for life and godliness. He's gonna say to them in verse 12, which we won't cover today, guys, you actually know this truth, but you forget it. And so many of us do that as well. He's gonna say there actually is a new life in Christ for you. Listen, you can Change, Uh, that is possible. There is a new life in Christ for you and there are things that you can be setting your minds and hearts upon uh, while you wait for that change that will help you to walk that out in a new way in your life with Christ. So let me just give you some context to this and I'll dive into the text. I've got three observations and I'll be out of your hair for a couple of weeks uh, anyway. Peter is elderly when he writes this letter. Now, I know some of us have some kind of reverse generational arrogance where we think old people um, smell peculiar and just reminisce about the good old days um, and don't have anything wise to say. But in ancient cultures around the world, elders are elders, right? And they are to be respected and listened to, even though they become kind of cranky and increasingly prejudicial over life because they just stop caring about what people think, right? They've always thought those things. They just were never allowed to say them in public. But then when they get towards eternity, they're like, nah, all right, who cares anymore? All right. All my friends are gone, so who's gonna correct me? Let's go. Um, And so they just say stuff that they've been uh, thinking for decades anyway. But Peter's there, he's elderly, he's close to death, he tells us in verse 14. He's probably imprisoned in Rome and he's writing to this Jewish diaspora spread out throughout Asia Minor. And he's heard some reports back from the field that suggested that the Christians, shock horror, were struggling to walk in holiness in their new life. And so 
some teachers had come in amongst them and had said, don't worry about the way that you live in the body. You have been saved by Christ, and so it doesn't matter how you live in this life. The only thing that matters in the next life. And so in order to do that, they were denying the physical return of Jesus Christ and its accompanying judgment day. They were saying, don't worry about Jesus coming back and judging the world. That's not gonna happen. Uh, You've been saved. It's all good. How you live in this life doesn't matter. And so they were bailing on the concept of sanctification. And so elderly, dying Peter writes and says, guys, you've forgotten some things. Let me remind you of some things that you know on some level, but you aren't putting into practice in your life. I want you to remember these and to apply them long after I am gone. Essentially, he's going to call them to the Christian life of growing in grace. Grace doesn't just get you in, Grace grows you once you're in and keeps you while you are in and ultimately will stand you in good stead before your Lord on that last day. Now listen, with that context, can we all just lean in a little bit? You've got a dying man knows he won't see this group again. And when a dying man says, hey, I wanna tell you something before I'm gone, what do you do? You listen, right? My grandfather um, came to see me. I think I was 11 years old. I should have fact-checked this, but... um, I think I was 11, um, maybe 12. Um, my grandfather had, had terminal uh, cancer and he came to see me one last time. They brought him in an ambulance and, and brought him to the side of a cricket field to watch me play a cricket game in a provincial tournament. Now I know um, what I just said um, has you guys just imagining all sorts of Quidditch-related sort of its activities. It's like this mystical pastime. It is the world's finest pastime, um, played by the most dignified of gentlemen, all right? And, and, and he came along um, and, and he wanted to want, uh, watch one last time and so he watched the game and um, I got some runs, that means nothing to you, don't worry. Um, and at the end, um, I saw they were gonna load him off and take him back to the frail care facility and I knew, I knew, I knew, it's the last time I'm gonna see him. What did I do? I run up to the side of the gurney and I put my hand in his and he motions for me to come closer and he whispers the last things he said to me in my ear. I'm not gonna tell you what they were because it's none of your business. But uh, I, I, was, I was eager to listen and to pay attention. Peter is saying, guys, some things before I go. So listen, so listen. Here we go, first one. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now we don't have a lot of time for this today, but what a magnificent greeting. I know that if you're reading scripture regularly, sometimes we can just blow through greetings, we can just blow through genealogies as well, but often in the greetings and in the goodbyes, there are such incredible truths. We could spend the entire week right here because as I was reading this for um, preparation for today, it just jumped out at me at how Peter introduces himself. Look, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know how much you know about the history of Peter, but I'm gonna assume that you know some. And if I am honest, I would probably have introduced myself as Peter, the one who abandoned Christ and denied him three times due to the threat of a teenage girl who are admittedly scary. Um, after swearing, after swearing that I would never do that. Yes, that same Peter who went back to fishing after the death of my Lord because I didn't expect him to be raised from the dead even though he told me tons of times he would be. I am that guy. You probably shouldn't read the rest of this letter. 
That's how I would have introduced myself because I would have just felt so much shame. But Peter is confident that Christ has established him as an apostle and as a servant of the gospel. And there's something in that combo, friends. There's a humble certainty. Um, There's a humble dignity as well. Apostle and servant, servant and apostle. How How can he be both of those things? We don't see that today. When someone introduces themselves as apostle, normally they're trying to set themselves up above people. Peter goes, I'm an apostle and a servant. Well, how can you be both of those things, Peter? It lies in the fact that he says we have all obtained, listen, an equal standing before God by the righteousness of Christ. That's the measure. What a wonderful leveler in the goodness of the gospel. Peter doesn't have to be defined as a failure. Why? Because he's defined by the righteousness of Christ but he doesn't have to be defined as an all-star apostolic, you know, big guy either. Why? Because of the righteousness of Christ. And he's writing to a group of Christians growing weak in their faith, and he says they have an equal standing. Why? They're defined by the righteousness of Christ. Friends, whoo, breathe. All of us in here today who are believers in Christ Jesus are defined by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You could be shooting the lights out and you're a servant. You could be failing like a wretch and you're a beautifully loved daughter or son. Why? You're not defined by you. You're defined by something that was done for you by your great Lord and can never be taken away from you. I love that. Look at verse two. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Here's Peter's desired outcome and it's my desired outcome for us today a multiplication of grace and a multiplication of peace all because they know Jesus. Verse three. His, just don't gloss over. Read this, read it for understanding. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become, listen, you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Is he writing to a bunch of rock stars? No, he's writing to a struggling, doubting, wrestling, scared diaspora. And he says to them, you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption of your flesh. What? Not future based? Now, you may become these You can grow in grace. There is a new life for you. And so the first observation this morning is this. Growing in grace, which is what we're all supposed to be doing. Every believer is supposed to become more like Christ. Growing in grace requires God's power. It requires his power. But it is a power that is given to you. Guys, this verse, sorry, I don't even really know how to teach it. Because if you just read it and believe it, it is so scandalously good that I don't really know how to get us to actually 
fully believe it because I know we're gonna push it away. We're gonna go like, that must be for someone else. The divine power has granted us everything we need um, for life and godliness. That must have been a first century thing. That can't be something for me. But he's writing to people who are like us. And he's saying, even in your struggles, God has given you the power for your new life. Friends, listen. How many of us have felt, honestly, for the longest time, like God actually works against us in the process of sanctification? I've felt that at seasons. Like God moves the goalposts, like you're asked to accomplish this and then you do that and it's like, well, you're a wretch, so it's not good, so there's another goalpost. Like maybe he puts stumbling blocks and temptations in the way and then condemns us when we fall. That's not God, by the way, that's his enemy who tempts and then mocks. Hey, take this, take this, take this. You take it, you go, I can't believe you took it. That's not the voice of the Lord. That's the voice of the accuser, the liar. But many of us think that this is how the game's played out. I have felt like this in moments and it is blasphemy because it is totally opposed to what we are taught about God in scriptures like the one that we have just read. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, he said this, if he gives you grace to make you believe, he will give you the grace to live a holy life afterwards. If he gives you grace, if he calls you in, so if you're a Christian, that's happened, he gave you grace to make you believe, he simultaneously gives you the grace to help you grow in grace and live this new life in Christ. You go like, well, I don't know about Spurgeon. Well, how about Paul? Let's go to him. He thinks Spurgeon was a good preacher. Um, Paul was even better. Philippians 1.6, Paul said, I'm sure of this. I'm sure of this. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ. What this means, listen, is that my life of sanctification isn't actually just like a yo-yo. It's like a yo-yo in the hands of a man going up an escalator. It feels like it's up and down, up and down, up and down stationary, but it's up and down, 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 until I am made like my savior, Jesus Christ, and that day is a certainty. It's slow, but it's certain. And the grace that gets me in is the same grace that moves me forward. Friends, God wants you, listen, God wants you to be like his son. And he is currently working on you towards that end. Lovingly, kindly, tenderly, patiently, molding, shaping, changing, teaching, showing, revealing. He is committed to the sanctification of his children. And so we shouldn't give up on it. Well, how does he do it? How does he do it? That's straight away what we wanna get into, right? How does he do it? Well, according to Peter, through us growing in knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Here's what Peter says. The more you know Jesus Christ, the more you will be like him. The more you know Jesus Christ, the more you will be like him. Scott Sauls, who's one of my favorite Presbyterians, and um, that's quite a um, prestigious list because I like quite a few Presbyterians, but Scott Sauls said, Um, That's not a blanket statement um, on an entire denomination, but there are individuals um, that I'm really fond of. Okay, Scott Saul said, (laughs) if you want to be more like Jesus, you should focus less on being more like Jesus. You're like, hey, 
No wonder we're not Presbyterians. Um, But listen, it's got logic. You should focus less on being more like Jesus and focus more on being with Jesus. That's good advice, why? It's biblical. Peter says you wanna grow more like Christ? Grow in your knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's how it's gonna happen. But many of us, friends, want to be like him but don't want to spend the time or the effort or the sacrifice to be with him. Paul says in Philippians 3 that nothing in the world comes close to knowing Christ, nothing. Your highest highs don't count as much as it. Your lowest lows don't stand in the way of it. Paul wants us and and wants himself to know the power of Christ's resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings becoming like him in his death, so somehow attaining the resurrection from the dead. God gives us his son everything we need and says know him and become more like him. And then God gives us his spirit, everything we need for life and godliness. And what does the spirit continually do for us? Empowers us to know him and therefore become more like him in life and godliness. What a gracious God. He doesn't just say be like my son. He says be like my son and I give you everything you need in order to be like mine. Son, all right, verse five. For this very reason, make every effort. Some of you are like, oh, why didn't we close in prayer after the previous verse? Because this sounds like work, right? Just know Jesus, okay, cool, got it, I'll tweet that out, I'm out of here, let's go, okay? Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Look at this promise. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now let's just stop for a sec. (laughs) God wants you to be like his son, He empowers you to be like his son, but some of you go like, but I'm nothing like his son. I feel ineffective and unfruitful in my knowledge of his son. And Peter goes, excellent. Thanks for noticing. Make every effort. So the second observation is this. Growing in grace requires effort. Growing in grace requires our effort. Now this is big. Peter states it in the negative, and so let's just turn it around. If God gives us all we need for life and godliness and we unlock that through knowing Christ, here he tells us, here's how you become effective and fruitful in knowing Christ. You make every effort. Now, some of you got the heebie-jeebies right now, okay? You're wondering why I got recruited into this position because you came into this wonderfully gospel-centric church and you're really, really grateful for the work of Luther and the Reformation and and the doctrine of grace alone, and this is weirding you out because you think that I'm adding salvation to works. Uh, Some of you are going to want to come hammer some theses on these doors tomorrow. Please don't do that. This is a public school, all right? And so uh, don't hammer anything on the doors tomorrow. Peter isn't saying add works to your grace. He's saying your grace is so firmly established. Now make every effort to live out the fullness of that grace. If it's been given to you, why would you settle for a secondary type of life? If you've been declared righteous, why wouldn't you want to act righteous? Why would you want to live in such a discouraged dichotomy? Don't do that. 
Don't do that. Dallas Willard famously said, grace isn't opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning. Some of you might go, well, Dallas Willard, I mean, that's not very gospel-centered, is it? Well, Jen Wilkin tweeted out this week, I know Matt Carter hates Twitter, but sometimes there is good stuff, right? Um, and Matt's just old, maybe he doesn't know who to follow, okay? But uh, here's, here's some, some good stuff in here. Jen Wilkin, follow Jen, Matt, she's awesome. And she said, don't reduce gospel-centered to justification-centered. The good news is more than our freedom from sin's penalty. What? It is also our progressive freedom from sin's power and our ultimate freedom from sin's presence. Justification, sanctification, and glorification are all the gospel. God saves you by grace and then he changes you by grace as you make every effort and he preserves you by grace and then he'll present you by grace free of condemnation with the righteousness of his son. Look at how Paul said it to the church in Philippi. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out, look at this, work out your own salvation. He doesn't say work for your own salvation, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why? It is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Look at the marvelous order of this. You aren't beloved if you work. You are beloved, so therefore work. And guess what? God is gonna work in you and with you as you do. So make every effort to supplement your faith. Now friends, just before I get into this list. End of February, right? There's a reason they put spring break where it is and it's not just because it's spring, although that does seem to be a connection as I reflect on it, right? I'm from the Southern Hemisphere, so I'm like, why'd they put spring break in autumn? Um, and so, but because we run out of January energy, right, by March. You know that? You feel that? So new, new year, new me, baby, right? It's CrossFit this year, no carbohydrates, mm, right? I don't know, eight pack, it's me this year. I'm doing Iron Man twice. I'm going to do, do it twice. <laughs> By February, you're like, maybe a 5K, right? Maybe a 5K. And, 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 you know, carbohydrates, I think they're biblical. So I'm going to stick with those because that seems like a godly diet. Uh, but next year, those suckers are gone, all right? And by March, you're just like, I can't wait till December until I can make some New Year's resolutions again, right? <laughs> because now I'm just as fat and sad as I was in December. (laughs) Nothing's changed. Nothing's changed. So you guys sit here, this this applies in the Christian life as well, okay? (laughs) I'm sorry, I love you. You guys sit here, um, and and many of you would have had great desires for greater godliness this year. Marvelous, okay? Godly ambition is a godly thing. It's It's a wonderful thing. But now, in your Bible reading plan, you've got through the crazy second half of Genesis and you're starting to get towards some of the crazy parts of Exodus. You've read right through Acts and realized, my goodness, that's not at all like my experience. You've read through all of Romans. You've made it through Romans 9. You don't know what you believe anymore, right? You've read all of Job, if you're following on the McShane, and you're just like, I don't even know what to do with that sucker. And so what's happening? You're growing weary. And so you're starting to compromise and you're no longer making every effort. You signed up for a missional community and you went and you realized it's full of people as sinful and irritating as you. And so you've stopped going, you've made excuses, you've grown busy. You, you were making an effort, now you've stopped making every effort. 
Friends, today is a chance. Peter says, no, 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 don't shrink back. Christ is returning. The Holy Spirit is changing you. Make every effort. Make every effort to supplement your faith with what? With virtue. This is a term that speaks of moral excellence. This is not just getting a pass mark in terms of morality. This is an exemplary life. Not just seeking to be someone who doesn't do bad stuff, but desiring to live a life worthy of imitation. Are you making every effort in that space? Holy Spirit, now convict us of areas where our lives are not full of virtue. And we've stopped making effort. And to that add knowledge. This isn't just knowledge, this isn't just a PhD, this is knowledge of God, who he is. Peter tells us to add this. It isn't just something that will come to us in a mystical moment of experience. Otherwise, this would be a cruel instruction from Peter, right? Most of us think we'll grow in our knowledge of God just through some light bulb moment. The band's gonna play an E minor, they're gonna do that just before they're going to the bridge because it's how every song's written, right? And at that moment, the Spirit's gonna descend and I will be changed in an instant. Unlikely. You guys are great, by the way. And that E minor earlier, man. And it's beautiful and it stirs our affections. But we're supposed to make every effort to grow in our knowledge of God. Sundays won't get it done, friends. I don't care who's preaching, who's leading worship. Sundays won't be enough for the sum of your growing in a knowledge of who God is. Are you making every effort? Next one, self-control. This is Peter giving the side eye to the false teachers of the day who lived marked by licentiousness. Self-control is a fruit of the spirit. It's an outcome of knowing God. Are you making every effort in self-control? Steadfastness. The race is long. It's often tough. The prize goes to those who endure to the end. Friends, some of you are in a tough season with the Lord, I know. But keeping up spiritual disciplines in that season isn't legalism. It's making every effort. It's widening your stance a little bit and just saying, man, I'm, I'm struggling, but I'm steadfast. It's gonna take more than this to knock me off my stride here with God, right? Godliness. This is great because he's already promised us. He gives us everything that we need for life and godliness, but then he tells us to make every effort towards godliness. This is a word that speaks of pleasing God. Hey, Lots of you, lots of us, making every effort to live a life that pleases other people. (laughs) How many of us making every effort to live a life that pleases the Lord? Brotherly affection, the word here is Philadelphia. It's a fondness, affection, and kindness towards fellow believers. Not because they are lovely, they're not. Because you are making every effort And love, the Christian virtue that serves as the ultimate evidence of our faith in the first place. Don't just wait till you feel it. Act loving. Do unto others as you would have them do to you. Make every effort. Holy Spirit, where are some areas where we are failing to make every effort? Is it virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, love? Help us to stand. Help us to stand. All right, let's finish. Verse nine. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers and sisters, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. (laughs) 
Loves that. Confirm your calling and election. You were chosen by God. Confirm that in your heart by living this out. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. He doesn't say you'll never sin. What he's saying is you'll never get to the point where people go, I don't know if you were elected in the first place. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Growth in godliness requires God's power. Growth in godliness requires our effort. And lastly, growing in, uh, sorry, growing in grace requires God's power. It requires our effort and growing in grace requires much grace. Growing in grace requires grace. Some of us might just sit here this morning and go like, oh gosh, this is just a bunch more stuff to do. And I don't wanna do it. Peter warns us. He says, if you don't desire this sort of growth in grace, then you have forgotten who you are in Christ and you stumble around so nearsighted that you're bumping into things all of the time. And for some of you, that's a great definition of your Christian walk right now. Just stumbling into stuff all the time. Why? You've forgotten who you are by grace. We don't do these things to earn forgiveness of sins. We do them because we have forgiveness of sins and we remember that. And as we remember that, friends, just try to remember that your eyes are opened and we're drawn again to our new life in Jesus Christ. I needed reminding of that this week. I forget all the time. I'm so glad for Peter's spirit-inspired reminder. The gospel has ongoing implications for us in this life. It doesn't just save us from our old life. That's magnificent enough. It equips us for a new life and it sustains us for our ultimate future life. Some of you have forgotten that your sins are forgiven. And you think there's a piety in kind of wallowing in guilt away from God and staying away from him. It's not piety, it's insanity, it's blasphemy. When we remember the scandalous grace of our Father, it drives out a desire for obedience and intimacy and closeness and godliness and making every effort. If you're sitting here this morning going like, I don't wanna make any effort, you've forgotten your sins were forgiven. Be reminded, friends. <laughs> you are forgiven. If you are in Christ, there's some of you here this morning who are not yet believers in Jesus Christ. And the great news is that he gives you grace to enter into that relationship, not based on your works, not based on how smart you are, not based on even what sound decisions you make. He'll give you the grace to know him. You should do that this morning. You should just say, I believe in you. I don't even know why. I walked in here not believing you. Now I believe in you. That's called salvation. Everyone gets dragged across the line unwillingly. But if you, if you are in Christ, I, I don't care what you did last night, you're forgiven, be reminded. You have an entrance into the eternal kingdom, be reminded. Christ is returning on the judgment seat and you'll stand before him clothed in his own righteousness, be reminded and then rejoice and then make every effort. Your life might feel like a yo-yo, but it's going up and God is making that happen. 
He isn't working against you, hoping you will fail. Rather, he has stacked the odds in your favor, paid everything required for your failures through his son. And he's just calling you into who you really are in him. Grow in grace, friends. Open your eyes to who you really are and then live accordingly. Father God, thank you so much for your word. I pray that it would resonate deeply within us, that it would take root, that it, that it wouldn't be blown away by the wind, that it wouldn't be um, strangled out by distractions in this life, but that our hearts would be like good soil this morning, that, that hears your word and, and believes it and nourishes it and cherishes it and that as a result it grows. Lord, your grace towards wretches like us is scandalous. I cannot believe that you would choose me. I cannot believe it. I cannot believe that you would justify me through the sacrifice of your son. I cannot believe it. And because I struggle to believe it, Sometimes I forget it and as a result live like a blind man. I pray this morning you would open all of our eyes to know who we are and to remember what you have done and to remember that you desire to make us more like your son and that you have given us everything we need to live in greater godliness. Help us, Father, through your Holy Spirit to repent, to believe, to make every effort and to live this new life for the glory of your name and for the good of the people in our city. It's in Jesus' name we pray.